Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi everyone, welcome again to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today I'm in central London and I'm joined by Tim Liversey, who's a director and group CEO of Oriel Resources, PLC, which is the AIM-listed company. Their focus on exploration and development of gold and base metal deposits around Europe and Africa. Um, we met briefly at the Mines and Money event last week. And I'm really interested in Tim's uh, journey. Uh, he worked for some of the big companies, Barrett Gold, Anglo-American, and he's on the board of a few other companies, which obviously I want to explore as the podcast goes on. So let's get straight into it. So hi, Tim. Hi, Rob. Thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to obviously do this podcast. So I just want to start, as I do on most podcasts, start from when you studied geology at Newcastle University and then just a little bit of history about your career and how you've got to where you are. So if we can start from why you actually studied geology and how you got into mining and we will uh, progress from there. Okay. I think like a lot of geologists, I, I got attracted to the subject uh, geology and geography originally uh, because I used to spend a lot of my spare time outdoors. I used to walk and climb did a lot of rock climbing in the early days in the uh, gritstone quarries in the northwest of England, north of England. So it was a natural progression, really, to, to go on and study geology. I always enjoyed the, the landform and, and what was underneath it, what, what created it. So as you mentioned, I ended up at Newcastle studying. Yeah. Um, it was uh, by design. It was a, Newcastle was a great course, a lot of field trips experience yep. up into Scotland and Northumberland. Yep. And so on. Was the geology course related to a particular discipline, i.e. like mining, or was it just a general geology course? It was a, it was a broad geology course with yep. areas of specialisation. Newcastle yep. had a focus on coal mining and also on petrochemicals. There was a geotechnical department there as well, and also a mineral resources department. You could basically specialise to a degree in various different directions, take your geology in various different directions. I ended up going down the exploration and, and mining route rather than the petrochemicals route, I guess primarily because somebody offered me a job. Right, okay, that's <laughs> and, good. <laughs> uh, you know, in the, in the 80s, um, jobs were, were fairly thin on the ground, yeah. and uh, it was a time when a lot of the companies from Southern Africa were recruiting from the universities in the UK. Yeah. So I was offered a, a position, a three-year contract in South Africa, working over there for a company called Angloval. And, um, uh, you know, it, young student, adventurous spirit. Um, it's great for your ego when somebody offers to, to take you off to Africa for a few years. So, I wish uh, that happens so, now with, obviously, some of the graduates, and especially like last week, speaking to a lot of graduates, um, they're all all at the minds of money, trying to make contacts, trying to see what's in the industry, what what jobs are available. 
it's almost impossible. Um, yeah. You know, it's really difficult. Back in the 80s and, and early 90s, to some extent, um, most of the big companies tended to do a lot of internships during yeah. the summer for undergraduates. Depending how well you did with that, you were almost guaranteed a position of some sort. Which doesn't out. happen nowadays or doesn't seem to be happening nowadays. Absolutely nothing. It's really difficult yeah. for people to get the toe in the door. Young geologists, particularly with minerals exploration, mm. because there's so little that happens actually in the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it becomes an expense and uh, a logistical hurdle for, for companies to take young undergraduate students overseas for a summer season. Yeah. And so a lot of people just shy away from it. It's really unfortunate because it's it's at that stage in your career that it, it really cements whether or not it's it's something you want to follow. Certainly, um, certainly. You know, you, a lot of people are committing quite a lot and financially quite a lot these days to yeah. go in a certain direction without sometimes really knowing what they're getting into. Yeah, which is it, it's a tough place. I'm very glad I'm I'm not starting over now. Put it yeah. that way. Yeah, certainly. So your first job, you went out to South Africa. How was that? Obviously, I suppose moving away from probably first time, maybe not first time abroad, but first time to actually then go and live in another country in a new industry after graduating. Yeah. Um, How did you find that? It was interesting. I mean, I'd I'd been extremely fortunate to do my my undergrad honours mapping in New Zealand. So I I travelled a bit. And I managed to, to tag on, through my mountaineering experience, I managed to tag on to a, an expedition into the Himalayas just after I graduated. So South Africa was just, it was another holiday, yeah. essentially. That's how it seemed at the time. It was another trip uh, to go and see a new place. It was pretty challenging in the late 80s. Uh, obviously, under the previous regime, it was, it was an interesting place to be. But during my first three-year contract, I was dropped in as a lot of undergraduates were straight into the mines in the Vitz mine, Vitz uh, goldfields. And it was during that first three years that the change of government started to happen. There was the referendum in 91, and then ultimately, obviously, the, uh, the elections in 94. And uh, it was a great time to live through in South yep. Africa. I was actually a peace monitor during the election. Right, it, was, okay. it was a really interesting, a really interesting time to be there. But great experience. I mean, the geology was fantastic. Yeah. The companies were struggling to find the feet, some of them, uh, but there was exploration happening in South Africa. And I, I think getting mine experience early in, in my career like that was really useful. It confirmed that I really didn't like working three kilometers underground very much, but uh, it, it also set in stone some really good understanding of production yeah. Um, the the efficiencies of sampling, the efficiencies of blasting, uh, safety, communication with your with your co-workers, uh, management both up and down, the sort of chain of command, and um, three dimensional understanding of all bodies. Uh, it was it was a really good sort of apprenticeship for a graduate geologist who really realistically didn't know that much about yep. minerals. So sort of thrown in at the, at, at the deep end. Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was a real sink or swim time. You either adapt to it or you don't. And I was very fortunate to adapt to it. Uh, and I was very fortunate to have a lot of support from my family to, to travel out there and to do that. And then after the three years, the company then gives you a return ticket and it, you decide whether you want to go back again. I ended up spending 17 years in Africa, so, <laughs> right, general, okay. so I, 
I must have liked you it. You liked it, yeah. <laughs> did you just stay in South Africa or did you travel around Africa? No, no. I, I uh, Originally, when we went across to South Africa, I took my wife across with me and um, we had three years on the mines and then we went up to Barberton, up on the Mozambique Swaziland border, which was absolutely fantastic geology. The Barberton mountain land is, is an amazing place to be. And um, that's when I started working on base metals for the first time, worked on the Enkimati nickel project through sort of feasibility and, and into construction. And um, again, a different piece of the mining jigsaw after going backwards almost from production, going back to, to mine design and construction. So we were up there for a few years until the mine started. And then we traveled up to Zambia for a couple of years and then up to Tanzania for quite a long spell from sort of 98 through to about 2005 on and on, running Kibanga Nickel initially for Anglo-American and then for Barrick Gold. Yeah. Uh, and then I moved back to Europe in 2005. Yeah. That was my sort of the, the main step out to Europe. Yeah. I'd done some various bits and pieces for Barrick in, in Europe before then yeah. uh, while I was finishing up in Tanzania. But that was, that was a shift to the European sort of sphere. Yeah. Yeah. So when you obviously work in Africa, you worked in many different countries. What would you say the main differences were working in those various countries or were they pretty much the same? South Africa really is, I like to call it Africa light. Yeah. You know, the roads are tarred. Yeah. Uh, by the time I left, the you know, cell phones were in place. And nowadays there's cell phone coverage everywhere in Africa, just about. But uh, you just need to look at a map, an infrastructure map of Africa to see the density of roads, rail in South yeah. Africa compared to the countries immediately north and, and up into sort of Central and West Africa. So South Africa and, and Botswana and Zimbabwe, very different to places like Zambia, DRC, Tanzania, Kenya, and then the, obviously the West African countries were different again with yeah. all of the Francophile uh, influence yeah. over there. I guess that the... the at a very local level, at a project level, yeah. shall we say, where, where you're on the ground doing the work with the local teams, there isn't really a great deal of difference. You know, I, I've been very fortunate to work in, in a, a variety of different countries, both in Africa and elsewhere. And, and at the end of the day, the people that you're interacting with have got exactly the same drivers that we have. Yeah. You know, they want to be able to educate their kids. They want their kids to be healthy and safe. They want to be able to feed them. They have very similar aspirations. Humans have very similar aspirations yeah. all around the world. I guess that I've always gone into the projects that I've worked on and, and managed and run with that view. You know, if, if I was if I was the local and somebody was coming knocking on my door wanting to dig a hole in my garden and take a soil sample, I'd also want to know what you was doing yeah, yeah. And, and what's in it for me yeah, yeah. Uh, and how is this going to potentially be a positive influence for my family. Yeah. And I think mining is and it can be and is a positive influence. Uh, it, it's certainly, if you look around this room, everything in this room has been mined. Mine, or yeah. linked is linked to mining, even if it's extractive from oil and gas. So I think responsible mining has always been a mantra that I've sort of really supported. Yeah. Uh, and that goes down to responsible exploration as well. Yeah. You can do it the right way. Yeah. You can do it the wrong way. And it seems at the Mines and Money, there was a big emphasis on sort of corporate social responsibility and working with local communities and governments and not just going into a country 
and just think that you have the right to be there and the right to take the commodity out of the land and obviously make huge profits, it needs to be a win-win situation. Um, and I, I, I got a lot of that from, from the Minds of Money conference. A lot of people were speaking a lot around that. So there must be many issues. It's been a dawning realisation, I think, for, for all the, everybody in the mining industry for yeah. the last couple of decades, really. I mean, I've been involved in the industry now for, it'll be 30 years next year. And um, to be honest, all the way through, whoever I've worked with and worked for, we, we've always had the same sort of approach. Perhaps we are getting better as an industry at promoting what we do do, the positive impacts we have yeah. and the positive impacts we make. I still think the industry as a whole needs to work better together to do that. It's very much individualized at the moment. Um, Is that individual, like you mean in individual companies? Individual companies, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, most of the companies that I've come across do, do a really good job at gaining and maintaining their social license to operate. But collectively, we don't seem to do it very well. Uh, uh, yeah. It, it, it's interesting to see, you know, the, the, there's an expectation that um, there's going to be a lot more mergers in the near future, company mergers, both junior and, and sort of mid-tier and majors. And I wonder whether the mining industry is going through what the oil and gas industry did 30 years ago, where governments wanted a bigger take. And the oil and gas industries started, the, the big companies started working together. Uh, alongside to achieve that for both the company and both the government, local governments. Yeah, well. yeah, sharing the risk and um, sort of working in partnership. Risk rules. You know, yeah. I, I've I worked on um, one of the projects I, I worked on for Barrick was a joint venture between Barrick and Barrick Gold and Under for Gas to Minerals in Pakistan, and that was a true fifty-fifty joint venture between the two companies, each bringing specific skills to developing the project and sharing the risk, uh, splitting the risk between the two. Uh, and I think there will be more of that as formal joint ventures. And I think, obviously, the, the, there will be mergers of companies as well uh, on the back of that sort of thing. What would you say, obviously, working in Africa in those 17 years, what have you taken away from there? What have you learned, as opposed to possibly working here in the UK all those years? Africa is an interesting... Dynamic. I don't, and I don't think it, it's particular to Africa. I think you yeah. would probably find the same in if you were doing the same line of work in South America or in the bush in Australia or something like that. Working remotely with small teams does give you typically a lot of autonomy quite early in your career, and some people thrive on that freedom and that autonomy. Some people don't like the stress. Yeah, I found that it was a great opportunity to to really get to know the people you were working with yeah. you know if you're sharing a field camp 24 7 for weeks on end you, you get to know people very well you get to be ultimately quite a good uh, or you can get the opportunity to be quite a good people manager if you have the the right sort of mix of empathy and firmness and fairness then people will sort of respect you as a leader as well yeah I think certainly I would have been a lot older before I got significant levels of seniority if I'd stayed working in perhaps in a European got you. Uh, environment. Yeah. So I suppose you grew up quicker working in Africa within your career as a mine engineer or geologist. 
you've actually grown up quicker because you've been, I suppose, chucked in the deep end yeah. and then you had to learn quicker. Um, yeah. There are some fantastic training programs within some of the larger companies around the world for geologists, uh, engineers, yeah. metallurgists. At the time that I was dipping my toe into the industry, we didn't have a great deal of training programs set out for us. It, it was more a case of sink or swim. Yeah. Uh, you were thrown into projects and um, a lot of the stuff that I ended up doing was probably because I volunteered for quite a lot. Yeah. One of my managers back in the Anglo Isle days, uh, Dr. Henny Tiard, who's who's now working with SRK in South Africa, he he called me the opportunist. Right. And I, he he meant well by it, and yeah. I appreciated his comment. And it was because if there was an opportunity to to learn something new, I would take it. Yeah. You know, if there was a new piece of software that was that was being trialled, I'd be the first one to stick my hand up and say, "I'd like to get involved in that." And um, that approach to any career is good to have a good attitude to, to be really positive about trying to develop yourself pays dividends ultimately yeah uh, i didn't realize when i put my hand up for data mine training that it would end up getting a, me a job with anglo three or four years later in tanzania for example yeah. but it was one of the criteria that they needed and i happened to have had, had some it. training and, yeah. and so you know you, you end up uh, let's say you progress in, in your career isn't it so um so moving on, obviously you came back to the UK and obviously if you just want to cover your little journey then to where you are now. Also, I noticed you're obviously on a few boards as well. So I suppose with your journey as well, if you can explain, because I suppose what I want also to do is to, if you can explain how, how you got onto boards, what sort of skills that you need and attributes, and I suppose what is your role as a board member to a, to a company? Okay. Um, well, I, I came back in 2005, and at the time, the, the Cabanga project, uh, we brought in Falconbridge as a joint venture partner at Cabanga, and uh, Falconbridge were going to become the managing partner, even though yep. it was a 50-50, but they were, the, they were certainly much more experienced in nickel exploration than, than Barrick was. I, I was the only Barrick geologist that knew anything about okay. nickel at the time. So Falconbridge were coming in, so my role at Cabanga was really finished. So I came back, and in 2005, uh, we established an exploration uh, department looking at Europe and the Middle East. Around about that time, Barrick was taking a focus to look at porphyry systems. A lot of the South American gold discoveries were epithermal systems, but associated with porphyries. And porphyries, although they're typically lower-grade gold do have the potential for big volumes of gold. So Barrick was quite interested in that sort of uh, end of the of the uh, geological spectrum. So obviously the Tethian belt is a big porphyry and epithermal belt through Eastern Europe and, and Turkey into Iran and Pakistan. So um, we set up a base based in the UK, initially working out of my garage to look in that area, uh, set up a small team and really started off by doing a, a generative targeting exercise were the best places to be in the Tethian belt. And uh, that took us primarily into the Balkans initially, Eastern Europe, and uh, some work in Turkey, which uh, was a follow-on from some uh, joint ventures we'd had in Turkey previously as Barrick. And then in 2006, we ended up looking at the, the project in Pakistan, the Rekodik project in Pakistan. And um, I 
took a role initially as the chairman of the technical committee, which was a representative group of, of experts from Barrick and Andafagasta working together to oversee the exploration and the scoping study work that was going to be done in Pakistan. And I was in that position for about six months and, and several of us were getting a little bit frustrated by the pace of work. It was a great project. The caretaker company, Tethian Copper, uh, which was run by Tim Hargreaves and John Schloder, had done a great job after BHP left. But we felt that we had all of a sudden the backing of Barrick and Antofagasta. We had big budgets, big teams, great technical expertise to throw at this project. And uh, perhaps we needed to ramp the pace up a little bit. So I ended up taking over as the project director there. We ran forward with a very aggressive exploration campaign. I think we tripled the resource uh, in the in the two or three years of drilling there and found some new ore-free systems as well. And at the same time, we developed ultimately a feasibility study on the, the main project at Rekordik and uh, a pre-feasibility level expansion, sort of phase two. So that project really took the majority of my time for yeah. those years. I ended up, at the end of that, we applied for a mining license on the project. My role as the project director was finished, so I went back to my duties in exploration and, and uh, working through the UK office and, and uh, Toronto. From there, I went on to uh, spend a bit of time working in Saudi Arabia with Barrick yeah. uh, on the joint venture with, with Martin, uh, just working with the two two teams to try and bring them together to, to solidify the, the joint venture agreement. And then at the end of that, this was by the stage 2014, European exploration had been closed, Barrick closed down their Australian exploration base. Um, there, there was not a great deal happening in the part of the projects and exploration that I was yeah. used to working for. So Barrick and I decided mutually very agreeably to part company, and I went private for all of about three days. Right. And I ended up being offered a role as uh, Chief Operating Officer at Reservoir Minerals, uh, which brought me back into Europe, uh, into Serbia, on the Chikarapeki project, which was obviously by that stage already a, a great discovery. I worked uh, with the team at Reservoir for a couple of years until the sale of that asset to Nevsun. In uh, I think it was two, uh, April, May 2016, around about that time, and then by mid that year, Nevsun were the were, took over as the operator. Okay, yeah. I went across to Nevsun for uh, the remainder of that year and early into 2017 to transition in a team to do start doing the pre-feasibility study at Chikarapeki and to expand the exploration there. We, we'd signed up a, a joint venture with Rio Tinto the year before to do some exploration on some of the licenses. And so I took a role as the managing director in Serbia to facilitate the, the work for Nevsan out there. And I, I guess, again, you know, by this stage in your career, you're sort of in the more senior roles. And opportunities probably come to you from what you've already done. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I've never, you know, if you look at, back at my career, I've not really bounced around between companies a lot. I tend to have stayed uh, with companies for a good number of years. I think yep. I was with Barrick for 14 years, I was with Anglaval in its various incarnations for about eight years. I've typically been fortunate to have opportunities come to me 
from within the companies I've yeah. been working for a lot. And occasionally, uh, as with, with Reservoir, to, to come through connections I have in the industry. Uh, people hear that you're available, they know what your skill base is, and um, it, it's a matter of being lucky, yeah. and being fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, I've just done a lot of studies, uh, feasibility studies and so on in Pakistan, and Chikarapeki was going into scoping study, PEA. Mm. So I had directly relevant skills. I'd worked in the testing belt, I'd worked in porphyries, I'd worked on joint ventures with major companies, and Reservoir was JV with Freeport McMoran at the time. I'd done a lot of board work, presentations to boards. I'd been on the board of Tethian for a year after I left the CEO role. So my, I guess my CV lined up with Reservoir's need yep. at that time very nicely. So, uh, and, and I happened to know the chairman of Reservoir who spotted that I was moving in that direction as well. And, yep. uh, and said, great, you know, would you like to come and join it? Yeah. Quite a change going to a much smaller company than Barrick, getting used to uh, running things on a shoestring again, and uh, not having a big back office yeah. support team that you get from having to do everything, I suppose. Doing everything yourself yeah. and as cheaply as you can, as efficiently as you can, and, and remotely. You yeah. Know. Um, but I think you know adaptability is one of the key traits of most people in the mining industry. I'm not unusual in that. In that case, I don't think. I think everybody, certainly on the geological side, um, and a lot of the mining engineers that I've, I've met and come across, um, being adaptable and flexible is a key, yeah. key sort of thing in your career. So I, I you know, after Nevson's, after the, the, the handover to Nevson, um, I came back out and I was doing a few bits and pieces again, being available. I was, uh, I was asked to get involved in a couple of nascent projects and also to give some support to some existing companies. So that's where I got involved with things like the uh, WRS, the Worldwide yeah. Recruitment Services, uh, as a board advisor to their mining and exploration side. I got involved as the non-exec chairman at Minexia and as a, a, a associate director at Strategia Worldwide. Yeah. Um, and those roles, plus my own private consulting, kept me busy for a year or so. And then ultimately the opportunity arose with what was Stratex International. Yeah. They'd had a tough year and a half and uh, they were looking for a new CEO to refresh the company, shall yeah. we say. It was a, it's a company's been established for about 12, 13 years, uh, been listed in London uh, on the AIM market for that long, um, but for various reasons needed a bit of an update. And uh, I was available again. Um, I, I knew the some of the management team uh, the historically had set up the company, and and it was a fairly easy choice. You know, I knew the people. I knew yeah. that at its heart, it was a solid company. It had just had an unfortunate uh, run uh, in the last sort of twelve to eighteen months. So uh, I came on board earlier in two thousand eighteen, and. Um, yeah, we've been. It's been a busy year so far. Yeah, but obviously, I want, obviously, I want to talk about uh, rural resources. And obviously, like you said, you joined earlier this year. How was the company when you actually started? Obviously, you've gone through a rebranding, which obviously I'd like to if you could be able to share that. Um, you've gone through that exercise and wondered what sort of challenges you face. So, obviously, you've been here mm-hmm. f- since the beginning of the year. How has the company sort of developed? Gone through that rebranding phase and to where you are now. Uh, when I joined 
early in, in 18, the company had, they had some, some money in the bank. Yeah. It had some assets, uh, some licenses in Turkey and in Senegal. Really, the direction that the company had taken the previous year was to try to get into more advanced projects. And um, realistically, the skills base in the company lends itself more to project generation, early stage exploration, identification of new new opportunities. And I think about half of the investor base in 2017 had seen that and didn't want to go down that route into more advanced projects. So there'd been a bit of a pushback on the on a deal that was proposed. And that had really shaken the, the foundations of the company quite a bit. Yeah. So the management change, the CEO at that stage uh, stepped down and um, Bob Foster came back in as an interim measure uh, until they found a new CEO. Bob was one of the founders of the company originally, a fantastic exploration geologist, um, both academically and practically uh, sort of in the field. So when I came in, we had really to, to refocus what we were doing and our, what we were selling to our investors. Right in the early stages, Bob had already been negotiating along with the rest of the, the Stratex team. They'd been negotiating to bring Iron Gold, a major yep. Canadian mining company, in on the joint venture, to joint venture in on the license in, in Senegal at Dalafin. The deal was actually signed the day that I joined the company. But I had absolutely nothing to do with it. I'd love to say I did, but I, I didn't. It was all done previously. But that really took a lot of pressure off right from day one yeah. because immediately we had a major partner, greatly respected, fantastic company, yeah. working on our main West African license. And we were free carried on it. We weren't contributing to it. Most of our Turkish assets had already been farmed out to Turkish joint venture partners. All but one of them at that stage was at a phase where we were effectively just royalty holders uh, waiting for payment. There were a couple of other investments. The company has a a percentage share of a private company, Tarni Stratex, which was formed of some of the assets from from Stratex in the spin-out a few years ago, and also in um, uh, Foro Resources and uh, Tembo Gold in, in Burkina Faso and in Tanzania, respectively. But the majority of focus had been the Senegalese license, and that had now been passed out. So although there were no immediate money concerns, obviously the company then needed a new project, and it needed a new direction. And the direction that we proposed was to take it back to what it had done so well, which was project generation, early stage identification and development of assets. Push them up the pipeline to a stage where somebody either wants to buy them off you or earn in on them or JV them out or, or, or sell them for hard cash. What was the reason behind the rebranding then and not keep the original company? Well, the, the rebranding really was that half of the shareholder base that hadn't liked what happened in 17. Was uh, a new so direction and a fresh, I suppose, a fresh approach and fresh, fresh name. Fresh face, really. Yeah, yeah. They, they really wanted to see that um, the team that had taken the projects, the, the company into the projects in, in 2017 was, was moved on. And we took yep. a different direction. Uh, so I, I came in as the new CEO. Marcus Engelbrecht had been the, the CEO the previous year. He'd stepped out uh, and gone to join Crusader. Our CFO, who'd been with the company for, a, a, I think, over a decade at that point, um, was basically due to retire and had been hoping that once the deal had gone through in 2017, he'd been able to retire. So we got to the point where Perry 
identified a, a successor, a new CFO, Bob Smeaton, who came in June, joined us on the 1st of June. And then the next steps were we, we had to find some new ground. We picked up a couple of licenses in Cameroon, which were originally licenses I'd, I'd known and worked on with Reservoir Minerals, and they became available again. Great opportunity. Reservoir hadn't really progressed them very far because it had been focused on Serbia. They were very early stage licenses, new frontiers type thing. And the truth is that the investors, a dollar spent in Serbia, yeah. where you had a deposit that was 15% copper and 15 grams gold, gave you a lot better return than a dollar spent on a, a grassroots greenfields play in Cameroon. So Reservoir didn't really put a lot of focus on them. And, and when Nevson took Reservoir over, they also didn't put a lot of focus on. So these these licenses were, were there for the, for the picking up, really. So we did some due diligence, some independent due diligence on those, and they came in. So we then had new targets to chase. We changed out the non-execs on the board. Again, Peter and Chris had been on the board for quite a while. Uh, Peter Allison, our chairman, from the early days of my discussions with the company had been very clear that he understood there needed to be a change yeah. throughout the C-suite and the board. And he was just uh, conscious that he wanted it to be handled appropriately and timing-wise. We didn't want to rush into anything and, and further damage the company. So uh, Peter and Chris were very supportive of that change of, of their roles as non-execs. And we were able to bring in two fantastic non-execs, John McGloin and David Pelham. Uh, John was the chairman. Both very well-respected experts in the industry, both with a track record of success in West Africa in, in exploration and development of, of specifically gold projects. Through the space of six months, we brought in a new partner, Iron Gold, into Senegal, uh, a new CEO, a new CFO, the two new non-execs, one of them a new chairman, new projects in Cameroon. We did a raising mid-year, just over a million pounds, specifically to finance Cameroon, so yeah. new money as well. And really, the only thing left was to change the name. <laughs> yeah, so I was about to say, so basically you formed a whole new company. Yeah. So I suppose, in essence, it was right to have a new identity. I suppose you didn't have the same staff and you changed names. You actually, it, it seems that you actually changed, you had a new company, so it, it just formed a new company name. It wasn't existing staff that you had to actually go through a whole rebranding exercise. You just actually formed another company with some of your infrastructure that you had, and obviously a, a, a lot of additional people. We maintained the technical staff. So our West Africa manager, our Turkish manager, and our teams in West Africa and Turkey, and our, our back office team are all the same. Yeah. They're all the same people from Stratex. But the, I guess you'd call it at a management and strategic level, we've redirected the company completely. Yeah. Changed the team, refreshed our ideas of what we're looking for, there are a lot of opportunities these days. Ground is not exactly cheap, but there are a lot of opportunities to get involved in some great projects. But we have been tending to focus on what we like to call new frontiers, areas where people are not, we're not competing for ground. Yep. We're, we're picking up areas, uh, Cameroon is a great example, completely misunderstood gold district that we're the only operators there. We're the only people exploring that. We're getting some fantastic results out. We've got a, a huge trenching program on at the moment. The trenching program is, I think, as of the end of Mines and Money, we're on 7,500 metres, and I think it will probably extend uh, from that. 
because it gives us great results. It gives yeah. us great exposure to the geology. Uh, there's a very shallow regolith in Cameroon, this part of Cameroon. So basic trenching is, is really useful uh, technique. So we, we've taken the company in, I wouldn't say in a brand new direction. It was where the company used to be uh, sort of five years ago. Yeah. The raise that we did mid-year was the first time the company had been to the market in six years. Obviously, we'll have to go back to the market for the advanced drill phase in Cameroon after the trenching. Yep. But we would specifically be taking the results from the trenching to show the market why it's worth investing yep. in the next phase. We've really tightened up our cost structure, administration, logistics, uh, just basic overheads of managing the team have been reduced significantly. And those numbers will come out at year end. I think everybody would be very happy to see that. So I think I think we've we've got a good understanding of where the company needs to go. We know what exit strategies look like. We've been there. You know, Reservoir Minerals was sold for three hundred and sixty-four million dollars. I think. You know, we know what we're aiming for yep. to replicate that sort of success. I've worked on both sides. I've worked for the majors investing in juniors, and I've worked for the juniors looking for major investment. So. You know, I, I know you've seen what, both sides of the fence and yeah. worked in both sides of the fence, and you can see where you can take this company. Exactly, and I know what the may I know what people are looking for. Yeah, we as a team have got a I think a very good technical reputation, but also I think we've got a very good administrative and compliance and management reputation. We do things properly. We do invest a lot of time in building social license in, in doing the right thing in the projects that we run. Uh, and it is time. It's not necessarily money. A lot of the big companies realize that now as well. It's, you don't measure your social performance by how much you spend on it. It's how much it's success you the have. Impact sometimes the success yeah. is driven by very small amounts of money. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, as a company, we've undergone a massive change. And uh, I, I really look forward to 2019 developing the assets in Cameroon. Yeah. It was great to see I'm Gold announce their application for a mining license next door to our license in Senegal uh, at the Boltop project. Where they go with that, we don't know. Where yeah. they will go with that, we, we, we don't know. But it will always be a two and a half million ounce resource and we're right next door to it with yeah. anomalous gold. So, you know, there's, there's always going to be upside on our license. Yeah. There. But it sounds obviously exciting times. You've got obviously a new, a new team, a new image. And like you said, your company's focused on making new discoveries, not having the competition, going into sort of new areas and obviously helping local communities and obviously developing developing mines, developing workforces. So what's the future, the longer term future? And you're probably looking at three or five years where you want to go. Is there other countries that you're looking at and how do you see the sort of company growing? Have you, have you sort of looked that far in advance? Yeah, yeah, we have. We, we've been talking from the early stages. We've been talking about um, primarily, initially rather, uh, okay, where are we going to be working? Where should yeah. we focus our efforts? We have skills in the two teams in the West African Turkish team that are pertinent to West African geology and also pertinent to Tethian Belt type geology and Numian Shields. So yeah. the African European time zone is, is where we are best suited. We continue to look at opportunities both in Africa, West, Central, East Africa, um, the Middle East, up through the Tethian Belt, into the Balkans, and up into Europe. 
We haven't looked much in the north of Europe, in sort of you know Sweden, Finland, Norway type areas, purely because we we just haven't had the time in the last six or eight months. We've been focusing on on getting the company turned around, but but I think our skill set really is is sort of the Tethian Belt and West in the Africa, areas that you are looking at, yeah, yeah. And um, as for where the company is going to be in five years' time, we'd obviously love to be to be seeing gold pulled out of the ground in our Dalafin license and trucked the short distance down the road, 10 kilometers to a, a mine at Boto. Yeah. That would be fantastic. We'd like to see two or three of our Turkish assets, which are currently two of them at the moment, <laughs> in a stage of permitting at the moment. We'd love to see two or three of those in production and getting some royalties out of those. We'd love to see the Cameroon story hold together. Uh, you know, we're testing it. Yep. We, we're finding gold. We had some great results from the early stage work. You know, four samples came back over 100 grams a ton, 16 samples over 10 grams. You know, so we, we had some really, really good uh, indications that were in the right district. So it'd be great to see that progressed. And, yeah. you know, some drill programs being carried out or have been carried out on some of the better anomalism that we've seen in the 20-odd Ks of, of strike anomalies that we've identified to date. Yeah. And then hopefully also into a new area. Whether it's base metals or precious metals, we've got skills in both. But somewhere in the African European uh, geographical location, um, chasing up on on good targets with good people. I was going to say you've got good people, so certainly anything is possible. Well, yeah, yeah it is. Uh, we you need a you need a fair wind. Yeah, uh, you need a good bit of luck, and you need uh, you need some good supportive investors. Yeah, some people who have vision that you share the same vision that you yeah. have. Uh, and have the the faith and trust that you as a team can deliver as well as as can be expected in the circumstances and and really deliver an opportunity to de-risk assets it's all our game is all about de-risking yeah. assets you know the success rates are always rather challenging in exploration mining which is probably why at the moment that it's struggling to get finance as an industry but you increase your chances of success by going into good areas with good prospectivity, with good teams, working well with the government, working well with the local people. And um, if you can align those things, then you you, you maximise your chance for success. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, that's all we can all, that, that's yeah, yeah. What we can all hope for, is yeah, to yeah. maximise your chance Certainly. for success. I um, want to slowly wrap this up now. So for the last five minutes or so, just want to ask you a few quick-fire questions. Okay. Why do you enjoy mining? Variety. Okay. Variety in terms of people, yeah. places, products. You know, you get to interact with geologists, with financiers, with lawyers, with metallurgists, mining engineers, social scientists, environmentalists. Different group. A massive yeah. team of, of very, very different political views, very different uh, social views. It's a very broad, what's the phrase? It's a broad church, the mining business. Yeah. Uh, and I think everybody adds something to it. And I find that very. I always find discussions in those broad, broad groups really interesting. Yeah. Um, who's been the most influential person on your career or maybe people? Well, I wouldn't be able to do to have done any of this without my family behind me and particularly my wife. You know, we had three kids in Africa and uh, she followed me around from camp to camp and, you know, home to home. We moved house more times than I care to remember. Most of it, I'm usually on a different continent and yeah. she gets on with it. So 
I would be untrue to myself if I didn't appreciate that and uh, and, and recognise that. Within the industry itself, technically, you know, I've been fortunate to work for a number of very, very good bosses, geological yeah. managers, uh, exploration managers, and I've learned from all of them. We haven't always all seen eye to eye, and that's part of your development as well. Even the negatives are positives. I had some great support from some of my early management, uh, Stefan Haydenreich on the mines, very supportive. Uh, Henny, Alex Davidson, uh, when I joined up with, with Barrick, uh, and then latterly uh, Rob Kritchmaroff, you know, real industry stalwarts who recognised the job that exploration is and really fought the corner to protect the team. But I, I've, I think I've also learnt an awful lot. You know, one of my colleagues, a, a mining engineer, and another one, Jack McMahon, who's, who's now working over in Nevada. You know, Jack and I spent a lot of time working in Pakistan together and, uh, again, learning a lot from people that are completely outside of your discipline. So there's been a number of people that have influenced me. I, I always like to keep my eyes open and, and try to see the positives, yeah. try to see the, the pluses. And um, as I say, I've been very fortunate to work with, with a bunch of people who've taught me a lot. Some hard lessons. <laughs> Which is good sometimes. Which is good sometimes. Gets you out of your comfort zone it as does. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, push you don't forward. want to be surrounded by yes men. You want people to challenge yeah. what you do. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think a, a broad mix. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you still want to achieve? And probably more, maybe more personally. <laughs> personally, I'd love to spend more time on my bicycle. Um, <laughs> I uh, and I'd love to learn to sail. Okay. Um, it's it's something that I've 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 sat on a on a dinghy or a yacht a couple of times and it's something that has always been very attractive to me but I, I'm one of these people who tends to go all in on stuff so yeah. I would need to have lots of time uh, lots of money and preferably someone out and warm to learn well I was going to say is anyone else anyone else out there that has a boat that you might be able to uh, well, I've got a friend might, might be able to invite you I've got a friend on. in Turkey who's got a okay. yacht and I keep threatening to go visit him, but, you know, a week is not long enough. Yeah. I, I have to do it for six months or something, totally immerse myself. But no, I, I'm very, I, I guess I'm very content in where I've got so far. I'd just like to keep doing what I'm doing yeah. and, and keep adding value to the teams and, and the investors. You know, the, the recognition from the people you work with is, is really important to me. And that, I, I expand that to the investors because they're people we work with. You yeah, know? yeah. They put their money into us and their faith into us and um, the recognition, rewarding that recognition by finding stuff for them and, and spending their money wisely is really important. Yeah. Where do you see the future of mining? I think it's going to be a real challenge. I think there's a, yeah. I think at the moment there's a huge negativity on mining around the globe and um, I think it's misplaced. Uh, the mining industry has moved forward a long way from where people imagine it, it is. And at the end of the day, we need natural resources. You know, we can recycle as much as we like. You still need the basic building blocks yeah. to carry on a life. Even if we restrict our our consumerist uh, tendencies somewhat to try and address climate change and everything else, I think mining is an absolute given. And I think socially responsible mining is is really important. I would hope that mining will continue to grow in importance at a government level in Europe and, and around the world. And I would hope that the governments that we work with around the world really understand and, and expand the, the 
knowledge of, of the value that mining companies bring to them. So the Do you think they lack that a little bit? Uh, or not, like you said, is it because it's having a negative effect on the mining industry and, and governments, are they shying away from, from mining as a... It's very difficult. You know, if you look at yeah. the uh, typical four to five year term of any minister or any government for that matter, um, it's very difficult for them to commit to something that realistically... Takes a lot longer. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. you know, average mine is, what, 15 to 20 years? Yeah, yeah. So as a mining minister anywhere in the world, for you to put your name supporting something on a project that you're not going to see the light of day for 15 to 20 years uh, is a bold move. Hmm. And um, for some politicians, that's a step too far, uh, you know, from a popularity point of view, particularly in the current market. And would you say that's changed, that attitude has suddenly changed more recently or has it always been there? I think it's always been there to some extent. Yeah. But obviously there's a bigger focus from from the, the people these days. You know, mining is seen as a very negative thing. So as a politician, it's too easy to just say, you know, not in my backyard, I'm, I'm yeah. not going to approve this license. Um, Rather, what they should be doing, I think, is they should be focusing on, okay, you want to build a mine. Well, let's talk in great detail about how we can do this for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, a win-win situation. In a a responsible manner that's going to give us the assets that we need and the value that we need and and create the opportunities we need, but at the same time is is going to be uh, sustainable and then at the point of closure is is going to be, um, you know, a success story throughout its life. Yeah. Right to you know post closure rather than yeah. just an abandoned hole in the ground. Yeah. And lastly, any advice that you give any mining professionals in the industry, sort of in developing and bettering themselves? As I mentioned right at the beginning, I think it's a really tough time for any, yeah. anybody getting getting into the industry now. Don't, but that shouldn't put people put, off. It yeah, shouldn't yeah. put, put no. you off at all. Um, you know, there are a lot of companies out there that are more than willing to uh, give you an opportunity to get your toe in the door. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to, what's the classic phrase? You've got to kiss a lot of frogs. Yeah. You've got to knock on a lot of doors, but use your networks, use your university professors. Obviously, do your best in your studies, but keep an eye on where you want to be. I guess one of the biggest turnoffs as a potential employer is having somebody walk through the door and they don't really know what they want to do so um, be clear on your objectives and where you, yeah. where you want to go and where you want to be in a period of time e- even if it's not to stay in minerals exploration and mining yeah you know even if it's to say listen i don't know whether i this is where i want to be but i think the only way to make that decision is to spend you know a few months or a year working in it and then i can make the right choice yeah being honest throughout your career, I think, is the most important thing you can do for yourself. And I think that that is treated with respect by certainly all the mining and exploration professionals I know would far rather have somebody be completely open with them yep. than somebody trying to hide what they're doing. But, uh, yeah, don't be disheartened. Give it a shot. There are companies out there that have opportunities for you. Ask and try to keep your mind open to new ideas. Yep. Be, be the opportunist. Yeah. As I was uh, identified early on, you know, take that extra course, yeah. learn that extra skill, do that uh, first aid course with St. John's Ambulance because you never know when you might. That Same. might be the thing that tips the balance between you and somebody else Yeah. when it comes to choosing somebody to do a month in the field. Yeah. I think uh, it's the, the persistence, as you mentioned, 
Um, and obviously speaking to a lot of people at Minds and Money, a lot of graduates, they're asking how, how can they move forward? And they, they were doing the right thing actually being there. And Absolutely. hopefully they, hopefully they networked well, which I, from what I saw, they did. Yeah. And opportunities will present itself. Yeah. Don't know how long, but it will. And that's it, why I advised it, everyone. It will. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. No. You know, some of the, let's call it investments that you make in, in time, in training, in experience only pay off two or three or four years later. But time spent productively is always time spent yeah. well. Yes. Yeah. All right, Tim, appreciate your time uh, doing this podcast. Um, it's an interesting journey that you shared um, and obviously exciting times ahead. If our audience wants to contact you, how can they go about doing that? Well, Oriole Resources website yep. is the easiest place to, to tap in. There is a you can subscribe to the website uh, to get our news updates, and you can also put in a general uh, query through that website to, yep. to the management team. Kamarco is our PR and IR representative here in London. Uh, so any more sort of senior levels uh, on the PR side can go in through Kamarco. But uh, the website's probably the easiest first yep. first pass. And I talk at conferences, other people from Oriel Resources talk at conferences and various meetings, yep. you know, geological society events, that sort of thing. Um, and are you also on social media as well? Come and introduce people? yourself. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So, you know, I've, I've had a few approaches through LinkedIn and, and uh, in the spirit of, of trying to give back, you know, I do try to, to keep fairly current with, with that. I don't check it all the time. Every week, but... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the usual social media yeah. um, approaches. Yeah. But uh, yeah, if you see us at any events, come and speak to us. Come yeah. and introduce yourselves and, um, and have a chat. Yep. Alternatively, you can contact myself um, and I can pass any messages on to Tim. If you can uh, contact me at rob at mining-international.org, I can pass those uh, messages on. Well, thanks a lot for another podcast. Um, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Got some valued content from... And until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.